Chapter Four of Pierre and Jean by Guy de Maupassant, translated by Clara Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. These slumbers, lapped in champagne and chartreuse, had soothed and calmed him, no doubt, for he awoke in a very benevolent frame of mind. While he was dressing, he appraised, weighed, and summed up the agitations of the past day, trying to bring out quite clearly and fully their real and occult causes, those personal to himself as well as those from outside. It was, in fact, possible that the girl at the beer-shop had had an evil suspicion, a suspicion worthy of such a hussy, on hearing that only one of the Roland brothers had been made heir to a stranger. But have not such natures as she always similar notions, without a shadow of foundation, about every honest woman? Do they not, whenever they speak, vilify, calumniate, and abuse all whom they believe to be blameless? Whenever a woman who is above imputation is mentioned in their presence, they are as angry as if they were being insulted, and exclaim, Ah, yes, I know your married women. A pretty sort they are. Why, they have more lovers than we have, only they conceal it because they are such hypocrites. Oh, yes, a pretty sort, indeed. Under any other circumstances, he would certainly not have understood, not have imagined the possibility of such an insinuation against his poor mother, who was so kind, so simple, so excellent. But his spirit seethed with the leaven of jealousy that was fermenting within him. His own excited mind on the scent, as it were, in spite of himself, for all that could damage his brother, had even perhaps attributed to the tavern barmaid an odious intention of which she was innocent. It was possible that his imagination had, unaided, invented this dreadful doubt, his imagination, which he never controlled, which constantly evaded his will and went off unfettered, audacious, adventurous, and stealthy, into the infinite world of ideas, bringing back now and then some which were shameless and repulsive, and which it buried in him, in the depths of his soul, in its most fathomless recesses, like something stolen. His heart, most certainly, his own heart, had secrets from him, and had not that wounded heart discerned in this atrocious doubt a means of depriving his brother of the inheritance of which he was jealous? He suspected himself now, cross-examining all the mysteries of his mind as bigots search their consciences. Madame Rosemilly, though her intelligence was limited, had certainly a woman's instinct, scent, and subtle intuitions, and this notion had never entered her head, since she had, with perfect simplicity, drunk to the blessed memory of the deceased Maréchal. She was not the woman to have done this if she had had the faintest suspicion. Now he doubted no longer. His involuntary displeasure at his brother's windfall of fortune, and his religious affection for his mother, had magnified his scruples, very pious and respectable scruples, but exaggerated. As he put this conclusion into words in his own mind, he felt happy, as at the doing of a good action and he resolved to be nice to everyone, beginning with his father, whose manias and silly statements and vulgar opinions and too conspicuous mediocrity were a constant irritation to him. He came in not late for breakfast, and amused all the family by his fun and good humour. His mother, quite delighted, said to him, 
my little pierre you have no notion how humorous and clever you can be when you choose and he talked putting things in a witty way and making them laugh by ingenious hits at their friends Beausire was his butt and madame rosemilly a little but in a very judicious way not too spiteful and he thought as he looked at his brother stand up for her you muff you may be as rich as you please i can always eclipse you when i take the trouble as they drank their coffee he said to his father are you going out to the pearl to-day no my boy may i have her with jean bart to be sure as long as you like he bought a good cigar at the first tobacconist's and went down to the quay with a light step he glanced up at the sky which was clear and luminous of a pale blue freshly swept by the sea-breeze papa gris the boatman commonly called jean bart was dozing in the bottom of the boat which he was required to have in readiness every day at noon when they had not been out fishing in the morning you and i together mate cried pierre he went down the iron ladder of the quay and leaped into the vessel which way is the wind he asked due east still monsieur pierre a fine breeze out at sea well then old man off we go they hoisted the foresail and weighed anchor and the boat feeling herself free glided slowly down towards the jetty on the still water of the harbour the breath of wind that came down the streets caught the top of the sail so lightly as to be imperceptible and the pearl seemed endowed with life the life of a vessel driven on by a mysterious latent power pierre took the tiller and holding his cigar between his teeth he stretched his legs on the bunk and with his eyes half shut in the blinding sunshine he watched the great tarred timbers of the breakwater as they glided past when they reached the open sea round the nose of the north pier which had sheltered them the fresher breeze puffed in the doctor's face and on his hands like a somewhat icy caress filled his chest which rose with a long sigh to drink it in and swelling the tawny sail tilted the pearl on her beam and made her more lively jean bart hastily hauled up the jib and the triangle of canvas full of wind looked like a wing then with two strides to the stern he let out the spinnaker which was close reefed against his mast then along the hull of the boat which suddenly heeled over and was running at top speed there was a soft crisp sound of water hissing and rushing past the prow ripped up the sea like the share of a plough gone mad and the yielding water it turned up curled over and fell white with foam as the ploughed soil heavy and brown rolls and falls in a ridge at each wave they met and there was a short chopping sea the pearl shivered from the point of the bowsprit to the rudder which trembled under pierre's hand when the wind blew harder in gusts the swell rose to the gunwale as if it would overflow into the boat a coal-brig from liverpool was lying at anchor waiting for the tide they made a sweep round her stern and went to look at each of the vessels in the roads one after another then they put further out to look at the unfolding line of coast for three hours pierre easy calm and happy wandered to and fro over the dancing waters guiding the thing of wood and canvas which came and went at his will under the pressure of his hand as if it were a swift and docile winged creature he was lost in daydreams the dreams one has on horseback or on the deck of a boat 
thinking of his future, which should be brilliant, and the joys of living intelligently. On the morrow he would ask his brother to lend him fifteen hundred francs for three months, that he might settle at once in the pretty rooms on the boulevard Francois. Suddenly the sailor said, "'The fog is coming up, Monsieur Pierre. We must go in.' He looked up and saw to the northward a grey shade, filmy but dense, blotting out the sky and covering the sea. It was sweeping down on them like a cloud fallen from above. He tacked for land and made for the pier, scudding before the wind and followed by the flying fog, which gained upon them. When it reached the pearl, wrapping her in its intangible density, a cold shudder ran over Pierre's limbs, and a smell of smoke and mould, the peculiar smell of a sea-fog, made him close his mouth that he might not taste the cold, wet vapour. By the time the boat was at her usual moorings in the harbour, the whole town was buried in this fine mist, which did not fall but yet wetted everything like rain, and glided and rolled along the roofs and streets like the flow of a river. Pierre, with his hands and feet frozen, made haste home, and threw himself on his bed to take a nap till dinner-time. When he made his appearance in the dining-room, his mother was saying to Jean, "'The glass corridor will be lovely. We will fill it with flowers. You will see. I will undertake to care for them and renew them. When you give a party, the effect will be quite fairy-like.' "'What in the world are you talking about?' the doctor asked of a delightful apartment I have just taken for your brother. It is quite a find, an entresol looking out on two streets. There are two drawing-rooms, a glass passage, and a little circular dining-room, perfectly charming for a bachelor's quarters." Pierre turned pale. His anger seemed to press on his heart. "'Where is it?' he asked. "'Boulevard François.' There was no possibility for doubt. He took his seat in such a state of exasperation that he longed to exclaim, "'This is really too much! Is there nothing for anyone but him?' His mother, beaming, went on talking. "'And only fancy! I got it for two thousand eight hundred francs a year. They asked three thousand, but I got a reduction of two hundred francs on taking for three, six, or nine years. Your brother will be delightfully housed there.' An elegant home is enough to make the fortune of a lawyer. It attracts clients, charms them, holds them fast, commands respect, and shows them that a man who lives in such good style expects a good price for his words." She was silent for a few seconds, and then went on. "'We must look out for something suitable for you, much less pretentious, since you have nothing but nice and pretty all the same. I assure you it will be to your advantage. Pierre replied contemptuously, "'For me? Oh, I shall make my way by hard work and learning.' But his mother insisted, "'Yes, but I assure you that to be well lodged will be of use to you nevertheless.' About halfway through the meal he suddenly asked, "'How did you first come to know this man, Maréchal?' Old Roland looked up and racked his memory. "'Wait a bit. I scarcely recollect.' It is such an old story now. Ah, yes, I remember. It was your mother who made the acquaintance with him in the shop, was it not, Louise? He first came to order something, and then he called frequently. We knew him as a customer before we knew him as a friend. 
Pierre, who was eating beans, sticking his fork into them one by one, as if he were splitting them, went on. And when was it that you made his acquaintance? Again Roland sat thinking, but he could remember no more and appealed to his wife's better memory. In what year was it, Louise? You surely have not forgotten, you who remember everything. Let me see. It was in... in... in fifty-five or fifty-six? Try to remember. You ought to know better than I." She did in fact think it over for some minutes, and then replied in a steady voice and with calm decision. "'It was in fifty-eight, old man. Pierre was three years old. I am quite sure that I am not mistaken, for it was in that year that the child had scarlet fever, and Maréchal, whom we knew then but very little, was of the greatest service to us." Roland exclaimed, to be sure, very true, he was really invaluable. When your mother was half dead with fatigue and I had to attend to the shop, he would go to the chemist's to fetch your medicine. He really had the kindest heart, and when you were well again you cannot think how glad he was and how he petted you. It was from that time that we became such great friends." And this thought rushed into Pierre's soul, as abrupt and violent as a cannon-ball rending and piercing it. Since he knew me first, since he was so devoted to me, since he was so fond of me and petted me so much, since I, I was the cause of his great intimacy with my parents, why did he leave all his money to my brother and nothing to me? He asked no more questions and remained gloomy, absent-minded rather than thoughtful, feeling in his soul a new anxiety as yet undefined, a secret germ of a new pain. He went out early, wandering about the streets once more. They were shrouded in the fog which made the night heavy, opaque, and nauseous. It was like a pestilential cloud dropped on the earth. It could be seen swirling past the gaslights, which it seemed to put out at intervals. The pavement was as slippery as on a frosty night after rain, and all sorts of evil smells seemed to come up from the bowels of the houses the stench of cellars, drains, sewers, squalid kitchens, to mingle with the horrible savour of this wandering fog. Pierre, with his shoulders up and his hands in his pockets, not caring to remain out of doors in the cold, turned into Morausko's. The druggist was asleep as usual under the gaslight, which kept watch. On recognising Pierre, for whom he had the affection of a faithful dog, he shook off his drowsiness, went for two glasses, and brought out the grossette. Well, said the doctor, how is the liqueur getting on? The Pole explained that four of the chief cafés in the town had agreed to have it on sale, and that two papers, the North Coast Faros and the Havre Semaphore, would advertise it, in return for certain chemical preparations to be supplied to the editors. After a long silence, Morausko asked whether Jean had come definitely into possession of his fortune, and then he put two or three other questions, vaguely referring to the same subject. His jealous devotion to Pierre rebelled against this preference, and Pierre felt as though he could hear him thinking. He guessed and understood, read in his averted eyes and in the hesitancy of his tone, the words which rose to his lips but were not spoken which the druggist was too timid or too prudent and cautious to utter. At this moment he felt sure the old man was thinking, 
You ought not to have suffered him to accept this inheritance which will make people speak ill of your mother. Perhaps, indeed, Morosko believed that Jean was Maréchal's son. Of course he believed it. How could he help believing it, when the thing must seem so possible, so probable, self-evident? Why, he himself, Pierre, her son, had not he been for these three days past fighting with all the subtlety at his command to cheat his reason, fighting against this hideous suspicion? And suddenly the need to be alone, to reflect, to discuss the matter with himself, to face boldly, without scruple or weakness, this possible but monstrous thing, came upon him anew, and so imperative that he rose without even drinking his glass of grossayette, shook hands with the astounded druggist, and plunged out into the foggy streets again. He asked himself, what made this Maréchal leave all his fortune to Jean? It was not jealousy now which made him dwell on this question, not the rather mean but natural envy which he knew lurked within him, and with which he had been struggling these three days, but the dread of an overpowering horror, the dread that he himself should believe that Jean, his brother, was that man's son. No, he did not believe it. He could not even ask himself the question which was a crime. Meanwhile, he must get rid of this faint suspicion, improbable as it was, utterly and forever. He craved for light, for certainty. He must win absolute security in his heart, for he loved no one in the world but his mother. And as he wandered alone through the darkness, he would rack his memory and his reason with a minute search that should bring out the blazing truth. Then there would be an end to the matter. He would not think of it again, never. He would go and sleep. He argued thus. Let me see. First to examine the facts. Then I will recall all I know about him, his behavior to my brother and to me. I will seek out the causes which might have given rise to the preference. He knew Jean from his birth? Yes. But he had known me first. If he had loved my mother silently, unselfishly, he would surely have chosen me, since it was through me, through my scarlet fever, that he became so intimate with my parents. Logically, then, he ought to have preferred me, to have had a keener affection for me, unless it were that he felt an instinctive attraction and predilection for my brother as he watched him grow up. Then, with desperate tension of brain and of all the powers of his intellect, he strove to reconstitute from memory the image of this Maréchal, to see him, to know him, to penetrate the man whom he had seen pass by him, indifferent to his heart, during all those years in Paris. But he perceived that the slight exertion of walking somewhat disturbed his ideas, dislocated their continuity, weakened their precision, clouded his recollection. To enable him to look at the past, and at unknown events, with so keen an eye that nothing should escape it, he must be motionless, in a vast and empty space. And he made up his mind to go and sit on the jetty, as he had done that other night. As he approached the harbour, he heard, out at sea, a lugubrious and sinister wail, like the bellowing of a bull, but more long-drawn and steady. It was the roar of a foghorn, the cry of a ship lost in the fog. A shiver ran through him, chilling his heart. So deeply did this cry of distress thrill his soul and nerves that he felt as if he had uttered it himself. Another and a similar voice answered with such another moan, 
but farther away. Then, close by, the foghorn on the pier gave out a fearful sound in answer. Pierre made for the jetty with long steps, thinking no more of anything, content to walk on into this ominous and bellowing darkness. When he had seated himself at the end of the breakwater, he closed his eyes that he might not see the two electric lights, now blurred by the fog, which made the harbour accessible at night, and the red glare of the light on the south pier, which was, however, scarcely visible. Turning half round, he rested his elbows on the granite and hid his face in his hands. Though he did not pronounce the words with his lips, his mind kept repeating, Madashal, Madashal, as if to raise and challenge the shade. And on the black background of his closed eyelids, he suddenly saw him as he had known him, a man of about sixty, with a white beard cut in a point and very thick eyebrows, also white. He was neither tall nor short, his manner was pleasant, his eyes grey and soft, his movements gentle, his whole appearance that of a good fellow, simple and kindly. He called Pierre and Jean, my dear children, and had never seemed to prefer either, asking them both together to dine with him. And then Pierre, with the pertinacity of a dog seeking a lost scent, tried to recall the words, gestures, tones, looks, of this man who had vanished from the world. By degrees he saw him quite clearly in his rooms in the Rue Tranchet, where he received his brother and himself at dinner. He was waited on by two maids, both old women who had been in the habit, a very old one, no doubt, of saying Monsieur Pierre and Monsieur Jean. Maréchal would hold out both hands, the right hand to one of the young men, the left to the other, as they happened to come in. "'How are you, my children?' he would say. "'Have you any news of your parents? As for me, they never write to me.' The talk was quiet and intimate, of commonplace matters. There was nothing remarkable in the man's mind, but much that was winning, charming, and gracious. He had certainly been a good friend to them, one of those good friends of whom we think the less because we feel sure of them. Now reminiscences came readily to Pierre's mind. Having seen him anxious from time to time, and suspecting his student's impecuniousness, Maréchal had of his own accord offered and lent him money, a few hundred francs perhaps, forgotten by both, and never repaid. Then this man must always have been fond of him, always have taken an interest in him, since he thought of his needs. Well then, well then, why leave his whole fortune to Jean? No, he had never shown more marked affection for the younger than for the elder, had never been more interested in one than in the other, or seemed to care more tenderly for this one or that one. Well then, well then, he must have had some strong secret reason for leaving everything to Jean, everything, and nothing to Pierre. The more he thought, the more he recalled the past few years, the more extraordinary, the more incredible was it that he should have made such a difference between them. And an agonizing pang of unspeakable anguish, piercing his bosom, made his heart beat like a fluttering rag. Its springs seemed broken, and the blood rushed through in a flood, unchecked, tossing it with wild surges. Then in an undertone, as a man speaks in a nightmare, he muttered, I must know. My God, I must know. 
He looked further back now, to an earlier time, when his parents had lived in Paris. But the faces escaped him, and this confused his recollections. He struggled above all to see Maréchal with light or brown or black hair. But he could not. The later image, his face as an old man, blotted out all others. However, he remembered that he had been slighter, and had a soft hand, and that he often brought flowers. Very often, for his father would constantly say, "'What? Another bouquet? But this is madness, my dear fellow. You will ruin yourself in roses.' And Maréchal would say, "'No matter. I like it.' And suddenly his mother's voice and accent, his mother's, as she smiled and said, "'Thank you, my kind friend.' flashed on his brain, so clearly that he could have believed he heard her. She must have spoken those words very often, that they should remain thus graven on her son's memory. So Maréchal brought flowers, he, the gentleman, the rich man, the customer, to the humble shopkeeper, the jeweller's wife. Had he loved her? Why should he have made friends with these tradespeople, if he had not been in love with the wife? He was a man of education and fairly refined tastes. How many a time had he discussed poets and poetry with Pierre? He did not appreciate these writers from an artistic point of view, but with sympathetic and responsive feeling. The doctor had often smiled at his emotions, which had struck him as rather silly. Now he plainly saw that this sentimental soul could never, never have been the friend of his father, who was so matter-of-fact, so narrow, so heavy, to whom the word poetry meant idiocy. This Maréchal, then, being young, free, rich, ready for any form of tenderness, went by chance into the shop one day, having perhaps observed its pretty mistress. He had bought something, had come again, had chatted, more intimately each time, paying by frequent purchases for the right of a seat in the family, of smiling at the young wife and shaking hands with the husband. And what next? What next? Good God, what next? He had loved and petted the first child, the jeweller's child, till the second was born. Then, till death, he had remained impenetrable. And when his grave was closed, his fresh dust, his name erased from the list of the living, when he himself was quiet and forever gone, having nothing to scheme for, to dread or to hide, he had given his whole fortune to the second child. Why? The man had all his wits. He must have understood and foreseen that he might, that he almost infallibly must, give grounds for the supposition that the child was his. He was casting obloquy on a woman. How could he have done this if Jean were not his son? And suddenly a clear and fearful recollection shot through his brain. Maréchal was fair, fair like Jean. He now remembered a little miniature portrait he had seen formerly in Paris, on the drawing-room chimney-shelf, and which had since disappeared. Where was it? Lost or hidden away? Oh, if he could have it in his hand for one minute! His mother kept it perhaps in the unconfessed drawer where love-tokens were treasured. His misery in this thought was so intense that he uttered a groan one of those brief moans wrung from the breast by a too intolerable pang. And immediately, as if it had heard him, as if it had understood and answered him, the foghorn on the pier bellowed out close to him. 
its voice, like that of a fiendish monster, more resonant than thunder, a savage and appalling roar contrived to drown the clamour of the wind and waves, spread through the darkness, across the sea, which was invisible under its shroud of fog. And again, through the mist, far and near, responsive cries went up to the night. They were terrifying, these calls given forth by the great blind steamships. Then all was silent once more. Pierre had opened his eyes and was looking about him, startled to find himself here, roused from his nightmare. "'I am mad,' thought he. "'I suspect my mother.' And a surge of love and emotion, of repentance and prayer and grief, welled up in his heart. His mother! Knowing her as he knew her, how could he ever have suspected her? Was not the soul, was not the life of this simple-minded, chaste, and loyal woman clearer than water? Could anyone who had seen and known her ever think of her but as above suspicion? And he, her son, had doubted her. Oh, if he could but have taken her in his arms at that moment! How he would have kissed and caressed her, and gone on his knees to crave pardon! Would she have deceived his father? She? His father! A very worthy man, no doubt, upright and honest in business, but with a mind which had never gone beyond the horizon of his shop. How was it that this woman, who must have been very pretty, as he knew, and it could still be seen, gifted too, with a delicate, tender, emotional soul, could have accepted a man so unlike herself as a suitor and a husband? Why inquire? She had married, as young French girls do marry, the youth with a little fortune proposed to her by their relations. They had settled at once in their shop in the Rue Montmartre, and the young wife, ruling over the desk, inspired by the feeling of a new home, and the subtle and sacred sense of interests in common which fills the place of love, and even of regard, by the domestic hearth of most of the commercial houses of Paris, had set to work, with all her superior and active intelligence, to make the fortune they hoped for. And so her life had flowed on, uniform, peaceful and respectable, but loveless. Loveless? Was it possible, then, that a woman should not love? That a young and pretty woman, living in Paris, reading books, applauding actresses for dying of passion on the stage, could live from youth to old age without once feeling her heart touched? He would not believe it of any one else. Why should she be different from all others, though she was his mother? She had been young, with all the poetic weaknesses which agitate the heart of a young creature. Shut up, imprisoned in the shop, by the side of a vulgar husband, who always talked of trade, she had dreamed of moonlight nights, of voyages, of kisses exchanged in the shades of evening. And then, one day, a man had come in, as lovers do in books, and had talked as they talk. She had loved him. Why not? She was his mother. What then? Must a man be blind and stupid to the point of rejecting evidence because it concerns his mother? But did she give herself to him? Why, yes, since this man had had no other love, since he had remained faithful to her when she was far away and growing old. Why, yes, since he had left all his fortune to his son, their son. And Pierre started to his feet, quivering with such rage that he longed to kill someone. With his arm outstretched, his hand wide open, 
He wanted to hit, to bruise, to smash, to strangle. Whom? Everyone. His father, his brother, the dead man. His mother. He hurried off homeward. What was he going to do? As he passed a turret close to the signal mast, the strident howl of the foghorn went off in his very face. He was so startled that he nearly fell and shrank back as far as the granite parapet. He sat down half-stunned by the sudden shock. The steamer, which was the first to reply, seemed to be quite near and was already at the entrance, the tide having risen. Pierre turned round and could discern its red eye dim through the fog. Then, in the broad light of the electric lanterns, a huge black shadow crept up between the piers. Behind him the voice of the lookout man, the hoarse voice of an old retired sea captain, shouted, "'What ship?' And out of the fog, the voice of the pilot standing on deck, not less hoarse, replied, "'The Santa Lucia.' "'From where?' "'Italy. What port?' "'Naples.' And before Pierre's bewildered eyes rose, as he fancied, the fiery pennon of Vesuvius, while at the foot of the volcano, fireflies danced in the orange groves of Sorrento or Castellamar. How often had he dreamed of these familiar names, as if he knew the scenery. Oh, if he might but go away, now at once, never mind whither, and never come back, never write, never let anyone know what had become of him. But no, he must go home, home to his father's house, and go to bed. Come what might, he would not go in. He would stay there till daybreak. He liked the roar of the foghorns. He pulled himself together and began to walk up and down like an officer on watch. Another vessel was coming in behind the other, huge and mysterious, an English India man, homeward bound. He saw several more come in, one after another, out of the impenetrable vapour. Then, as the damp became quite intolerable, Pierre set out towards the town. He was so cold that he went into a sailor's tavern to drink a glass of grog, and when the hot and pungent liquor had scorched his mouth and throat, he felt a hope revive within him. Perhaps he was mistaken. He knew his vagabond unreasons so well. No doubt he was mistaken. He had piled up the evidence as a charge is drawn up against an innocent person, whom it is always so easy to convict when we wish to think him guilty. When he should have slept, he would think differently. Then he went in and to bed, and by sheer force of will he at last dropped asleep. End of chapter 4